uh, let's pray and then we'll get down to it. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we, we come again, uh, we completely dependent on you. If we're to understand your word, it'll be because you help us. And so we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, keep us attentive, help us to stay alert and uh, help us to, to cherish your word and to take to heart those things that you desire to teach us today as we come to it together. So we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, it was great to see so many of you at the camp last week, and uh, I hope you enjoyed Peter Adam and his ministry, because I sure did. Uh, but Peter, as he was teaching us the book of Esther, uh, referred several times to the fact that the book of Esther, in fact, the whole of the Bible revolves around the idea that God uses people. Uh, he can do all sorts of extraordinary things uh, without anyone's assistance, and yet he chooses to use people. And so the right people in the right places at the right times are the ways that God advances his purposes in the world. And God's purpose in the world is to restore the blessing that was lost when sinfulness crept in, uh, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to rebel against him. And God promised that he would restore that blessing. And, and that's the story of the whole Bible. And so as we're reading through the book of Acts, we can see the progress of God's plan to restore his blessing to the world through the Lord Jesus, the one who was sent from heaven to earth to live a sinless life and, and to die and be raised again and to, um, to ascend to heaven where he reigns and where he directs the affairs of the church by his Holy Spirit who he sends. So that's the story of the book of Acts and we're at a turning point today uh, in Acts chapter 10 and into verse chapter 11. Uh, this is the longest single section of the book of Acts. It's the longest story, and there's a fair bit of repetition in there. Now, that repetition is not by accident. It's because Luke really wants to impress on us the importance of these things in terms of the overall story. And so I've talk, called a talk today a tale of three cities and a prayer that changed the world. So it would be really helpful if you've read Acts 10, verse, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 18, and uh, we're going to have a little glance at Psalm 67 and also some words of Jesus from Mark chapter 7. But the three cities concerned are Caesarea, where we're going to meet a Roman centurion named Cornelius, uh, Joppa, where we find Peter, who in the last uh, episode in the book of Acts has been called to Joppa to raise from the dead uh, a Christian woman there, a believing woman there called Dorcas or Tabitha. Uh, and then the story that we're reading today ends up in Jerusalem, where Peter is back amongst the apostles and the brothers, and also he runs into the circumcision party, a group of people who were practicing Christians but still firmly wedded to the old ways of Judaism, and they caused trouble. So everything we read uh, needs to be uh, held against the idea that, um, that Jesus commissioned his apostles uh, in the last words that he spoke to them uh, that we find recorded here in the book of Acts. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that's the outline of the book of Acts right there. It starts in Jerusalem, it proceeds to the end of the earth. We haven't got to the end of the earth yet, but we are seeing the progress of the gospel beyond Jerusalem into the regions around Judea and Samaria and even as far away as Caesarea. And so the first part of our reading comes from uh, its setting in the city of Caesarea. And we can say that here we find God is listening to, he hears a Gentile's prayer. Now the Caesarea that we're speaking of is not Caesarea Philippi that we read about in Matthew chapter 16. 
Uh, it was Caesarea Maritime. Um, it was a city on the coast and it was a city that symbolised everything that was hateful to Jews. Uh, if you go to modern Israel today, you can still visit it and there's been extensive archaeological work done there to uncover the remains of the Roman Empire. Uh, but it was built by Herod the Great and it was named by Herod in honour of Caesar Augustus, uh, hence Caesarea. Um, as a reconstruction of what Caesarea Maritima looked like, uh, it was a place where there was lots of evidence of, of Roman uh, buildings and, and their religion and their way of life. Uh, it became the centre of Roman rule, so that's where Palestine was ruled from. Uh, it was known as the Middle East's most European city. It had a large Gentile population. It would have had a small Jewish population because they would have found it quite distasteful to live surrounded by Gentiles and surrounded by so many pagan temples, including one at the highest point of the city, built in honour of the, the emperor himself, Caesar Augustus. Of course, it had all the things that Romans liked to be entertained by, uh, theatres and, and a hippodrome where they could watch athletic and racing contests. Uh, it had a massive harbour, so it was a wealthy city. Uh, really, Caesarea represented everything that a, a pious Jew would have regarded as wrong with their country. It would have been a stain, a pollutant in their land that they believed belonged to God. Well, in Caesarea, we meet Cornelius. He's a centurion, which means he's in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. So he's a representative of the occupying foreign power. And for that, he would have been hated by, by pious Jews. But everything we read about him points out that he's actually a God-fearer. Now, God-fearers were a kind of Gentile who were attracted to the worship of Yahweh in Judaism. They, they liked the fact that there was only one God worship, not the, the dozens, hundreds of gods that were common in Roman or Greek religion. Uh, and they liked also, they admired the, the ethics of Jews and the, the kind of lives that pious Jews lived. So we read there that Cornelius fasted and he prayed and he gave alms. In other words, he was financially generous. Later on, we read that he was uh, well spoken of by the Jewish nation. So he's a devout man, but he's not circumcised, so he can't be accepted as a Jew, a full Jew. And so we read in chapter 10, verse 3, about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., a time that Jews had as a set time of prayer. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, which is a common reaction to the visit of an angel, and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. God is hearing Cornelius' prayers. And so Joppa, as it's currently known, Jaffa, was where Peter was residing at that time. The right person in the right place at the right time. He was with Simon the Tanner. Uh, if you were to go to Jaffa even today, uh, you'll be directed to a place that people believe is the house that Peter was living in, the house of Simon the Tanner. Whether it is or not, I'm not sure, but nonetheless, people will tell you it is. And so Peter in Joppa, to give it its ancient name, is prepared for the encounter with Cornelius the Gentile by a vision that must have to him been shocking. So Peter had to be prepared as well, because a Jew would not willingly visit the home of a Gentile. It would make him ceremonially unclean. And so we read there that Peter was praying at the sixth hour, which means at noon. 
He's up on the top of the house. Israelite houses had flat roofs, stairs on the outside. So Peter had gone up onto the roof to pray. And while he was up there, we read in verse 10, that he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And so Peter's given a command. He's given a command to kill and eat. And he says, I won't, I can't. I've never eaten anything unclean. Now we're reminded here of the Old Testament law. I hope you'll come next Sunday as we talk about the Pentateuch, uh, an introduction to uh, the first five books of the Bible where Jewish law is explained in great detail. But pious Jews lived by the law. The law reminded Israelites in everyday kind of ways and through ceremonies and festivals and all manner of other things, but it reminded Israel that their God was one God and that he was a holy God. And Yahweh had said to his people, you must be holy as I am holy. And so the law was the means of maintaining ceremonial holiness. To be holy means to be set apart for good, right, true, noble, religious purposes. It means to be distinct. Israel had to be distinct from all the nations around about to show the nations that they belonged to no other than Yahweh, the God of the universe. So Israel had to be distinct, and one of the means of its distinctiveness was in the food that it ate. And so God said, there are some animals you must not eat. And so there were certain that were prohibited. And so in verse 14, when Peter sees this vision and he's told uh, to, to kill and eat, Peter says, by no means, there's no way I'm going to do that because it would make him ritually impure. Well, the voice repeats the instruction not once but twice. Three times Peter is told, rise, kill and eat. And then the vision disappeared. But Peter was instructed in verse 15 that this vision was something that was to teach him, something that he really needed to learn. What God has made clean, do not call common. God has made clean. So in other words, God has wiped away the impurity associated with the food laws and those animals there. Peter needs to learn that. And so we move on into the next section of our reading. And at verse 17 and following, we find that Cornelius's prayers meet with Peter's preparation. So Peter's, Cornelius has prayed, and angels come, and angel says, go and get Peter. Peter, the man who wouldn't eat with a Gentile willingly, has to be prepared for the visit of the people that Cornelius sends. And the vision's done that. And so in verse 17, we read that Peter was inwardly perplexed. The vision had left him wondering. But no doubt the vision brought to his mind some of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And so in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 19, and just as an aside, uh, it's been the belief of, of Christians from the very earliest days that Mark, called in the book of Acts John Mark, was the one who wrote down Peter's recollections about the things that Jesus said and did. Mark wrote them down. So when we read Mark, the Gospel of Mark, what we're reading is the reminiscences of the Apostle Peter. So these must have been words that Peter remembered because he taught them to Mark. 
And so the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, when the Pharisees accused Jesus and of his disciples of disregarding the Old Testament laws of cleansing pots and food laws and those sorts of things, Peter asks them a question. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? In other words, can't make him unclean. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. In a couple of sentences, Jesus has said those Old Testament food laws have done their job, they've served their purpose, and as of now, they're obsolete. Now, Peter must have had that in mind. The vision comes to him of these animals in in the sheep, and these words of Jesus must have come to his mind. But he needs now to learn that the vision is not about food, but about people who were made unclean by what they've eaten, Gentiles. He would have regarded a Gentile as unclean amongst other things because they ate the wrong food. Now, Peter needs to learn a thing not about animals, but about people. And so while he was mulling these things over, while he was perplexed at that very moment, behold, a word which means look out, watch, look at it, here it is. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, when did they turn up? Right then, right at the right time. They stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So they've been sent by Cornelius because the angel told him to. And they turn up just at the moment when Peter is thinking about this, uh, this vision that he's had, which shows us that the spirit is directing things. The Holy Spirit is in charge of all these events. We could say that this is a meeting which has been made in heaven. And so the the men who've come from Cornelius, from Caesarea to Joppa, they say Cornelius was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So if Peter is to do what the Spirit's instructing, he's got to put himself at the risk of defilement if he's to preach the gospel. It hasn't really occurred to him that that's part of his brief, to speak to people who aren't ceremonially clean. But he needs to learn that, yes, that is what he's there to do. But according to all that he believed, he was being asked to make himself impure. Now, he's been brought up in the Jewish way since he was a child. They were thoroughly ingrained in him. This is a massive mind shift that he's been asked to undergo here. Everything up and that, that, that has framed his world has been challenged with this vision and with this instruction. But then we read, he invited them to be his guests. So something in Peter is beginning to change. It looks as though he's beginning to understand what he remembered from Jesus and those food laws. The era of those food laws is past. Something new is beginning. But Peter should have known that from elsewhere in the Jewish scriptures. And so Psalm 67, which we've read, uh, begins in this way. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That's Israel. Why? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The peoples are the nations, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And the psalmist knows that the purpose of Israel is to live these holy lives that show what it's like to have Yahweh living among you as your God. And it was to recommend the way of Yahweh to the nations. But Israel, of course, failed repeatedly over and over again. But nonetheless, it's at the heart of Jewish faith to believe that theirs is the faith that must be taken 
to the nations, to the peoples, so that they can believe and so that they can know Yahweh as their God. But Peter, no doubt, remembered also words that are recorded at the end of Luke 24. So the Gospel of Luke is the first part of which Acts is the sequel. And right at the end of the Gospel of Luke, as he records it there in his first volume, he records Jesus as saying that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Peter can't keep the good news to himself if he's to be a good Jew. It's written in the ancient scriptures. It's been reiterated by his master and Lord Jesus. This good news that he's believed, that saved him, that's forgiven him, he must now take to people who up until now have been outsiders. And so we read from the second part of verse 23 and on into verse 33 that Peter obeys. He goes with the men. He obeys in the new way of the spirit. We read there that he goes to Caesarea and he takes six believers with him from Joppa. Now we know it's six because we see that in chapter 11 when he tells the story to the people back in Jerusalem. So six plus one is seven. That's the ideal number of witnesses, the perfect number. Um, so they'll be able to give a good account of things when things are done. So Peter goes to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea and Cornelius fell down and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Peter needs to learn something, but Cornelius needs to learn something. Cornelius needs to learn you don't worship any human, apart from Jesus, who is fully human and fully divine. You don't worship Emperor Caesar Augustus. You don't worship priests. No human being other than Jesus is worthy of worship. Peter wants to get that through very quickly. So he says, stand up, I'm only a man, which gives us a lesson too. Um, the only object of our worship should be God. Uh, anything else is idolatry. We don't need to bow and scrape before anyone. I mean, we show respect by all means, but, but no bowing. But Peter needed to learn that there was no one who was beyond the reach of the gospel, no one who was common or unclean anymore in that way. So they're both learning lessons about people. So having got through that, Peter went in with Cornelius and I wonder if he went in whether he wondered if the roof would fall in. He must have thought twice. This is something he'd never done before. But when he went in, he found that Cornelius, in anticipation of his arrival, had gathered family and many close friends to hear what Peter had come to say. And so as Peter unfolds the message that he's been given, he reminds them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why are you sent for me? Peter's done what he's been told to do. Now he wants to know what he has to do now that he's got there. And so we find here the third retelling of Cornelius's experience. When we find repetition in the Bible, it's not by accident, it's by design. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture. He used Luke to record the things that needed to be set down. But if we find repetition, it's because this is a lesson that has to be impressed on those of us who read it. This is a crucial turning point in the whole story of God's dealings with people as they're told in the book of Acts. So Cornelius says after the vision, uh, after the instruction from the angel, in verse 33, I sent for you at once. 
and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. It's actually a pretty good sentence for church, isn't it? We're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Uh, those of us who preach in Mafra get our commands from the Bible. And we're not making it up ourselves. We're just getting this because uh, it's been laid out in Scripture. And so we bring it. And um, it didn't need to be in a temple. It didn't need to be in any sort of special holy place. The bearer of God's good news to an audience of people, Cornelius sensed that they were in the presence of God. And so as chapter 10 comes to an end, the Gentiles hear the good news uh, in Caesarea. Uh, from Joppa, verses 34 to 35 of chapter 10, Peter says, truly I understand. So he's had this vision and he's had understanding now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What it means is that God has no favourites. Up until very recently, Peter was pretty sure he did. Most Jews were very sure that God had chosen them and no one else. Uh, and that therefore God had a preferential interest in them. But now, in the new way of Jesus, they need to realise that Jews and Gentiles are accepted equally, and the basis that anybody will be accepted is by faith in the Lord Jesus and his death, his burial, and his resurrection on their behalf, and no other way. And so Peter says there, I understand that anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. He's using Old Testament categories but Old Testament categories that have New Testament implications. Fear in the Old Testament is the equivalent of faith in the new. It means belief. It means relating rightly to God according to the terms with which he has revealed himself. Uh, and the terms with which God has revealed himself in the New Testament is Jesus. He's the one who puts us right with God. And of course, faith needs to be uh, lived out in lives of righteousness. And so Peter's come to an understanding that that is possible too, even for people who lack the privilege of being born a Jew. And so he goes into this sermon. Uh, Luke records a number of great sermons, great instances of preaching to show how the gospel is uh, presented to a range of different audiences. And this is the first time that the gospel is preached to an exclusively Gentile audience. And so in verse 36, the word that God sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to make peace between God and his enemies, rebellious human people. And then he just reminds them that he is Lord of all. Jesus is the master of everything and everyone, not just of the Jews, but Romans too. And so verses 38 to 41, as he continues, Peter recounts that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth to give him a human title, just a, a human being from the city of Nazareth. But he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good. And so Peter recounts the kind of miracles that he did. And he says, we were witnesses of all that he did. So in other words, I'm telling you because I've seen it. And then he goes on and he says, after a career of doing good, they, the Jewish authorities, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, according to Deuteronomy 21, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. So to everyone watching on that day at Golgotha when Jesus was suspended on the cross, 
He looked like a man who was under God's curse. But, says Peter, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter says, I'm here to tell you, Cornelius, and everybody else listening, Jesus was killed. It looked as though he was under God's curse, but then God raised him from the dead. We've seen it. But notice here that Jesus bore witness to his own resurrection by the fact that he ate and drank. He couldn't have been a ghost. He was eating and drinking with the disciples. But there's something for Peter to mull over. If Jesus ate and drank with him, then Peter needs to eat and drink with other sinners, including Gentiles. Now remember back in the story in Luke 5, Jesus sends the disciples out for another go. They've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. And when they go out and have another crack, they come back with a miraculous catch of fish. And in verse 8 of chapter 5 of Luke, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter knows that the grounds by which he's been accepted by God is by faith in Jesus, his son. And now through the vision and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he's realized that he relates to God through Jesus in exactly the same way that he's been instructed to explain to these Gentiles. And so how can Peter not eat with a Gentile sinner when Jesus has eaten with him? And so Peter goes on, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now there's a problem that humans have got before a holy God, a perfect God, a sinless God, a God who every human will one day meet and give an account for. He's sinless and we're sinful. We need to be forgiven. We need to be put right with him. We need to understand life in his terms and realize that the eternal kingdom is one that he sets the rules for. And he has a judge and his name is Jesus. And so believing rightly in Jesus is the key to earning God's favor, to being at peace with him, which has eternal ramifications. And so Peter preaches it to the people. Well, before he could finish, he hadn't wrapped things up. He hadn't got to the appeal. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. In verse 44 to 48, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Again, we see that the Spirit is in charge. Now, the amazed witnesses observe the gift and they can authenticate it. And the evidence that the Holy Spirit has fallen is just like what happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They spoke in tongues. And this is to show that just as Peter said at the beginning, God shows no partiality. It's not just Jews gathered in Jerusalem on whom the Holy Spirit's fallen. It's Gentiles living in the pagan city of Caesarea, them too. And so it shows us again that Jews and Gentiles are alike equal. They're accepted fully after believing the gospel, the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus, crucified, buried, raised and ascended. Now this has been called by people who write about these things, the Gentile Pentecost. Uh, it raises the question of what, what's going on with tongues. Um, in Acts chapter 2, it was foreign languages. We're told what they were. Uh, 
we're not sure if that's what's happening here because there's no evidence that there were people of a variety of different nationalities. Uh, but in Acts chapter 2, all of the apostles were present. It took place in Jerusalem. Here in chapter 10, Peter the apostle is present. It happens in Caesarea. So this movement that Luke wants us to understand out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But in chapter 19, where tongues are mentioned, the apostle Paul is there. And this time it's in Ephesus. It seems that tongues operate in the book of Acts to show the progress of the gospel and the receipt of the Holy Spirit in line with Acts chapter 1-8, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But the thing to notice here is not so much that they're speaking in tongues, but they're extolling God, they're praising God, as Psalm 67 calls on the nations to do. That's the important thing. The nations have received the Holy, the Holy Spirit and they've become one with the ancient people of God. This is conversion. It's regeneration. These people have been born again. Cornelius was not saved before Peter arrived. He knew it, and yet it was Peter who was the instrument. The angel could have told him the message, but God uses people. It was Peter, and Peter had to follow in obedience. This is an important lesson that Paul records for us. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's how God saves people, by others going out with the good news and explaining it to them, with the Holy Spirit's help so that they can believe that Jesus is the way to God. And so in chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 18, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and reports the, sal the salvation of Gentiles to the people in Jerusalem. Uh, he, re he remains in Caesarea for a while, we read in 1048, then he returns with his six, wit six witnesses to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the circumcision party, people who believed that to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus, you needed to first become a Jew and go through all the Jewish ceremonial processes. They criticised him. They said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, so he tells his story again. Note the repetition. Now, not only has Cornelius been converted, but Peter has also. He's been converted in his understanding of the universal implications of this gospel. But as his speech in Jerusalem finishes, he says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things... They fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So as Peter says, God shows no partiality. He has no favourites. The gospel is for everyone who repents and believes. Gentiles didn't need to become Jews to be welcomed and at peace with God. Now, salvation is only in Jesus. We've seen that in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, words that Peter spoke himself. But it is for all. It's for everyone. Caesarea needed to hear from Joppa. Jerusalem had to be convinced. Three cities. God using the right people in the right places at the right time to advance his purposes. But Caesarea, the pagan city, needed to hear from a Jew currently residing in Joppa. But he had to go back and tell the good news in Jerusalem to those who had to be convinced. But reading this, 
this long account that Luke has been very careful to record, we can see that Cornelius's prayer changed the world because the Spirit moved Peter to obey. Uh, it changed the world because the implications are still being felt to this day because most of the believers in the world are not Jews. They're, they're people from the nations, people like us. Uh, and so Cornelius is the, amongst the very first of what God has intended to do. But there are some implications that come out of this. We could ask, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You'll hear people speaking about it as though it's something else. Uh, great, you've been saved, but now have you been baptised in the Holy Spirit? And if anybody asks you, the answer is yes, you have. Um, when Peter tells the people in Jerusalem, he goes all the way back to, uh, to the baptism of John. John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so Peter says, if, if God gave them the gift, he gave us who, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can say this, believing in Jesus is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's baptism is to be born again or to be regenerated or converted. You can't be a Christian without receiving the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our hearts to receive the Lord Jesus at all. Um, it, was by great, uh, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved, says John Newton. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is involved. That's what it means to become a Christian. But what about tongues? Should believers speak in tongues, as we've seen has happened here? In Acts 2, we're told that the tongues are other languages. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it's difficult to know exactly what they are. But one thing we can say is if, if the Corinthian church wasn't getting the gift wrong, Paul wouldn't have said anything to them. Uh, he doesn't talk about tongues in, in his other letters, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, all the biggies, no mention of tongues. But we do read in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And then he asks these questions. Are all apostles? What's the answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do I need to speak in tongues to really be a Christian? No. It's a gift that God has given and sometimes does give still, but uh, it's not essential for salvation. We can talk about more that more at another time. But the principle of reading the, the book of Acts in any narrative sections of the Bible is just because it has happened doesn't mean it always will. So think about Ananias and Sapphira and be grateful that God doesn't deal with Christian liars by killing them every time. Or think about Herod, who we'll see in chapter 12, who took glory for himself that should have been for God alone, and he was eaten with worms and died, and wonder how it is that our politicians get away with so many boasts. Uh, just because God can do it doesn't mean he always does do it. For instance, you might think to yourself, one of the lessons out of this passage is I should, I'll get better results for my prayers if I pray on the roof. That would be a misapplication of this passage. But one of the implications of this passage that, that comes home quite clearly is that there are still many among the nations who need to hear that Jesus is the one who's been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And there's no other means by which a person can be put right with God except through faith in the name of the Lord Jesus, turning from their sins and living uh, a life of righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit. There are people in our town, there are people 
in, in houses near you who need to hear this, but there are people in all the nations, which is why we continue to send and to support missionaries. And so if there are many among the nations who still need to hear that Jesus is this one, how does that shape our prayers? Are our prayers and arms, our, our giving, ascending as a memorial before God? There's some things to think about. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for this extraordinary story of a Gentile who came under conviction that he needed to call Peter. We thank you for Peter's obedience in following the lead of the Holy Spirit and putting aside everything he believed to, to go and make himself available to preach the good news to Cornelius. We thank you that Cornelius believed. We thank you that Luke wrote these things down. We pray that you would write them deeply on our hearts so that we would be convicted that we too must be people of prayer and generosity, people quick to speak uh, the, the truth that Jesus is uh, the saviour of the world and its coming judge so that we too can play our part in extending that work that you began so long ago which will continue until Jesus comes again. Please help us in this way and we ask that you would keep the Mafra Community Church faithful to this call until Jesus returns. We pray this in his name. Amen.